It's interesting. They, they, asked, uh, they asked me what coffee song uh, they wanted me or t- they wanted to play, and uh, that was the one that came to mind with the passage. So I started doing some searching, and that song started off as like a gospel celebratory song. You can find it on YouTube. I think it's from the 1940s. Uh, this almost celebratory gospelish song, and then over the years, it's been remade by artists after artists. Uh, Marilyn Manson has a rendition of it. Uh, Johnny Cash then really popularized it, and this was like the good soul sanctuary version of it this morning. Ah, it's good. I want to say welcome. Uh, my name is Jordan. Uh, I work with our high school students here at Soul Sanctuary, uh, and I have the opportunity to uh, share with us today. Um, before I, I, I dive into our text and before we really get going this morning, I, I want to talk uh, uh, quickly about something that's, that's happening here in our community, something that's important for all of us to be on the same page uh, on. And that's the uh, Soul Internship Program. So if you remember back to the fall, uh, we talked uh, about a couple initiatives here at Soul Sanctuary that we're bringing forward uh, to really invest in uh, our younger generations. Uh, one of those was bringing leaders in training onto our steering committee, the governing body that makes decisions of where this church goes. And they implemented four seats for people under the age of 25. And those people have been active since January in the decision-making processes here at this church. Um, in the same respect, we announced that in, in fall of 2019, we'll be launching the Soul Sanctuary Internship Program. It's a program tailored for 18 to 25-year-olds over 10 months from September to June. And it's an intensive program which focuses kind of on three pillars, all with the intention of building leaders in the context of the local church. Uh, The first one is uh, academics and education. And this is something that that we thought, if we're going to take 10 months of a kid's time, then there's got to be some payoff. So we partnered with Providence University College in Otterburn, Manitoba, to get the program accredited. And so students will actually, uh, they'll, they'll gain theological foundations here at Seoul through teaching from our pastors and from community members, but they'll also take accredited courses at Providence, and that's something that's important for us because they leave this program with an academic transcript in hand. Uh, then the next one is adventure and mission. So as much as our students are learning, there's also this component of team building. Like uh, Those who are enrolled in our program will, will be together. You know, they'll be off in the white shell camping, or they'll be snowboarding on the slopes of... Um, Holiday Mountain, or whatever else, right? Uh, But we bring them together, and we build team, and and we build unity. And then in that, we've partnered with Living Word Temple, our North End campus, to take our team onto reserve, uh, to serve some of the reserves that Living Word works with, and then also the intention of bringing them overseas to see our Ukrainian partners and to actually run an English camp over in the Ukraine. And then finally, we call it advancement in ministry. It's pairing our students in their gifts and passions uh, and equipping them for ministry in the context of the church, giving them leadership, but also giving them mentorship and spiritual direction in this process. So this is the Soul Sanctuary Internship Program in brief. Uh, There are brochures that are out or little view books that are out at the uh, info center. So if you know somebody who's in that 18 to 25 range and they're thinking like, what does next year look like for me? My encouragement for you is to bring, bring forward um, one of those view books for them and, and let them begin to discern whether or not this is for them. Here at Soul Sanctuary, we are committed to investing into the next generation that's coming up. Uh, that, that's a part of what my job here is, and it's something that just excites me because when we hold high standards for our students, they live up and they achieve to them uh, because nobody else sets high standards in our society, it seems, for our students. So uh, let the church be a place that does. So, let's pray. God, our Father, 
quiet our minds and still our hearts. Draw our focus to your word and your will for us. And strengthen our resolve to live according to your ways. Inspire our spirits here this morning. May we hear from you in the preaching of your word. And may it transform our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. So we're back into the book of Matthew. As Pastor Jordan had mentioned uh, uh, during our prayer break. So we're in Matthew chapter 21. And a quick note on this style of teaching. Uh, It's three years in our seemingly perpetual journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, I dug back through the podcast. We've been here for a while. And so the note of preaching that we're doing here, we're walking through literally verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter. Today we are literally biting off three verses, 12, 13, and 14. That's all we're doing. And this is called expository preaching. It's this idea that we start at the beginning of a book and we walk through it. As we go, it's as if the scripture exposes itself to us, right? It's bringing to light what, what the writers had written and we're forced to read it. We're forced to teach on it. You know, there's no conveniently like, ah, flip that page, don't like that, right? When we, when we go through uh, expositorily, we are forced to engage with the text. We're forced to wrestle with the text. In the same respect, it takes us three years here at Soul Sanctuary to get through a book uh, because we break topically. And so sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll stop and we'll do a series, right? And, and prayerfully consider what we need to hear in this time and in this moment as a community. And then we'll teach on it for, let's say, six weeks or four weeks or whatever else. And so we blend these kind of two styles of teaching together. And we actually take the merits of both of them. And we kind of combine them. If you've been here at Seoul long enough, I had to check with Pastor Jerry. Uh, but since Seoul started a number of years ago, we have done the book of Matthew, almost. Genesis. Song of Songs, John, Luke, Philippians, Ephesians, Jonah, and Acts. And like we've made it through those books. And there's some long books in there. I think Genesis was another one that was a couple of years uh, that we were in there for. Uh, but again, the benefit here is we can't gloss over anything. It stares us in the face. It reads us as we read it. And then some of our topical series, you may know God in the Movies, which we do regularly. Uh, You might know Sex with the Lights On, where we uh, approach a topic that hasn't come up in the text, but we know that we need to talk about. And so we use both to their benefit. In my life group this uh, last semester, we we took a look at the book of Ephesians. And in our journey through Ephesians, there were texts that showed up that we were forced to wrestle with. There were texts that showed up that made me think like, okay, my understanding of Christ is this, My understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ is this, but the text is saying this, and I am forced into this awkward tension where I have to come to grips. Do I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Do I believe that Jesus was who he said he was? These are questions I have to ask myself as we get into the text, and as our understandings continually grow, evolve, adapt, change, and as our beings are continually formed into the likeness of Christ. So we pick up today, actually before we get there, when we read our text, if the Jesus we read about seems unpalatable to you, if the Jesus that we read about doesn't really fit 
the nice version of Jesus that you have sitting in the back of your mind. If the Jesus we read about challenges your preconceived notions. I mean, you might be 50 years deep into this Christian thing. And this passage might make you uncomfortable. You have to ask yourself the same questions I asked myself as we studied the book of Ephesians in my life group. Is Jesus who he said he is? Is the Bible the inspired word of God? I think this morning we'll learn from the example of Jesus and exactly where he is leading us collectively as a community and individually in our own lives. So we pick up the scripture in Matthew 21. It will be up on the screen for you. Uh, we, we pick it up after the triumphal entry. Two weeks ago, uh, we were preaching through Matthew. It was the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Passover. And it just so happened as we were preaching through it to line up with Palm Sunday. We couldn't really skip the next eight chapters if we're going to preach this manner and get to the Easter story and the resurrection on Easter. Uh, but here we are back in the text. So we get like a second Easter. You know, Easter is coming again as we go through Matthew here. But we're in chapter 21. We're in verses 12 to 14. And this is what it says. Jesus entered the temple area, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Mental image here. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. We read of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in chapter 21 at the beginning on the back of a donkey. Remember, the people are expecting a king. And Jesus comes in, not on a colt, or, or not, not on a steed, not on a mighty horse, but he comes in on a donkey. And Jesus is hailed as people wave palm branches and lay down their cloaks before him. And the first thing he does after entering Jerusalem is goes, he goes to the center of the city. The center of the city is the temple. This is the hub of religious activity. This is where things go down, and that's exactly where Jesus goes. Jesus is, uh, is, is, is portrayed as kind of meek and mild coming in on the donkey, but we see a complete juxtaposition, a complete turnaround here in verses 12 to 14. Uh, Jesus shows up, and he doesn't come to worship. He comes to overturn things. He comes to challenge things. He comes flipping tables and benches. Like, get the vibe here. This is a God's gonna cut you down Johnny Cash vibe, all right? Like, like if you've heard that song before, you know it is like, the way Johnny Cash sings it, it is mellow and it is dark and it is like, ooh. And this is Jesus walking into the, the temple. Sooner or later, God's gonna cut you down. This isn't nice, soft, pale-skinned Jesus. In John's account of this story, Jesus makes a whip. How angry do you have to be to make a whip? You made a whip in your anger? Uh-huh. He drives out the animals in the temple. 
This is not the easy, easily digestible Jesus. We have to get our heads around that. Before we go any further in this text, Jesus is showing up and he is rough. Jesus is showing up and he is passionate. Jesus is showing up and he drives people out of the temple. Imagine if I started driving somebody out of here, right? You've seen the, those uh, videos where somebody's freaking out in a McDonald's or whatever and the employees are trying to drive them out of the store, right? Yeah, like, they're screaming, they're going off, and it's like, get out of here now! There's confrontation, there's stress, there's like, like, it's coming through the roof here. This is what's happening. This is what's going down. The sellers are hawking their birds in cages. The doves, which can be used as sacrifice in the temple. And the sellers are behind their tables and they're saying, ah, you came to the temple to worship on Passover, but you didn't bring sacrifice. Well, for the price of three gold coins, I could give you a dove. Or for the price of this, I could give you a bigger sacrifice. And the sellers... Well, they're not concerned about worship. They're concerned here about convenience. And they go to the, or the buyers are concerned about convenience. And they go to the sellers and they exchange their currency for objects of sacrifice so that they can worship in the temple. The place of worship becomes a market. And Jesus walks in on this. Where sellers are more concerned about their profits and buyers are more concerned about convenience than anybody is concerned about worshiping the one true God. And Jesus shows up and he pronounces how far gone temple worship is. And he takes it upon himself to cleanse the temple, to drive people out. There are a number of things going on here that we need to consider. Uh, uh, first is the audacity of Jesus' uh, action in driving people out. Think about it. If Jesus is calling this his house, this is my house, and he is taking the liberty of driving people off his property, he is making a claim here to the divine. He's not just Jesus the man, the great moral teacher anymore. He's saying this house of worship is my house, and if those prophecies in the Old Testament are prophesy about me, then I am God. There's a theological basis for Jesus being God. Jesus is fully human in one respect, but he is also fully divine. And we see him making that claim in this moment, implicitly. Uh, the, the second thing that we are forced to, and perhaps more striking, is the character of Jesus. Is the nature of Jesus. Here's what I see in our world today, and sadly what I would say I see in our church and churches today see a whole lot of people who love Jesus because he is for them. You know, he's an all-approving, meek, grace-filled guy in the sky who is for us. You know, it's great to come sing songs about how Jesus is for us, about how Jesus has got our back, about how he's in the corner, or our corner, you know? About how he can forgive us. And in fact, the way that we go on about life is we rest in a Savior, yet we neglect His teaching. And we cleave to His grace, but we forget His judgment. And we forget the standard that He sets. Now the love, the grace, the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus Christ 
is profoundly biblical. I mean, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those truths. But it's in Matthew 21 that we are forced to recognize that as much as Jesus is for us, there are definitely some things that Jesus is against. Table flipping, stool kickingly against. Making a whip, driving people out against. Jesus has worked up. So let's get to it. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and he drove out all who were both buying and selling. Remember, it's the frame of mind that these people are in. They're not here to worship. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Jordan McClellan told me that he would give me $5 if I flipped a table on stage today. We may get there. I want to make two points this morning out of our passage. The first one is Jesus is for your transformation and against your sin. Sin's a dirty word in the church. It's often uh, easier if we don't talk about it. You know, it's easier if we can sin in private. Just let our sin be over here and never address it. But here it is in the text. Jesus casts out the sellers and the buyers of religious commercialism. The holy place meant for worship has been turned into a market. And Jesus shows up and he says, this is not the way that it's meant to be. What what is made uh, uh, overtly clear in this passage is that Jesus is against the use of religion for personal and selfish benefit. The religion that Jesus teaches is not just for me. It's not just for increased profit margins. It's not for my pockets to fill up with dollars. That is not the religion that Jesus preaches. This passage screams that at us. Think of Matthew 6, verse 24. Recall that Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus is consistent here. Recall Matthew 19 where Jesus says to the rich young ruler, give away everything you own, give it to the poor, come follow me. And what happens? The rich young ruler goes away rejected or dejected. He's saddened because he realizes that he's too in love with his stuff to follow Jesus. Jesus comes into the temple and he sees misplaced affections. People's hearts are not in the right place. Subsequently, their minds are thinking selfishly and their action lives that out. Jesus enters the place where God is to be worshipped above all, exclusively, and he comes across, or, or, and people are coming across with a love for money as opposed to a love for God, and this is not okay. Their wealth was greater than their worship. And in this moment... At the table flipping scene and the stool kicking scene, those of you with Mennonite pacifist heritages have to, uh, have to draw some conclusions for yourself. I mean, it, it's quite astounding uh, to read, uh, and, and the, don't get me wrong, there are some in, absolutely incredible scholars that are pacifists. But it's quite astounding to read them try to come to terms with this passage. Jesus flips the tables. He has no regard for personal property in this moment. 
in John, he scatters their coins. It's like me taking your coin purse and going, whoosh, and there's coins everywhere. Not today. Not in my house. In a moment, we see Jesus, the meek and merciful king, turn into the mighty judge. And in a moment, it's Jesus who epitomizes love throughout his teachings and his sacrifice for us on the cross, who also rules justly. Let's not forget it. Jesus sees the misplaced affections in the temple and he is moved to dramatic actions. And for thousands of years, philosophers have debated this connection between heart, between mind, and body. And depending on the school of philosophy that you want to get into, there's all these different theories about how we're all interconnected. How is our soul interconnected with our mind? How is our mind interconnected with our actions, with our bodies, what we do? And, and for Jesus, uh, in first century Jewish thought, there is a, a deep interconnection here. A, a soul, mind, and, and body, and action are connected. What one does affects the other. And Jesus is about the transformation of the heart. And think about this in your own life for a moment. Uh, for my, myself, Reading scripture, when I get up early in the morning and I open my Bible and I open my journal and I meditate on it, it's a transformation process of my heart. That transformation then goes straight to my mind and then in straight to how I deal with people on a daily basis. There's something about the word of God and the time that I spend in prayer and the time that I spend in study which affects my heart first. My affections are captured. But then it has to go here. And then as I have right thinking, it leads me to right action. It leads me to do the things which Jesus has taught. I mean, sometimes in the morning I'll wake up and I'll turn on the Sonos in our house as loud as I can. And I'll just have those morning beats wake me up. And this goes straight to my mind. I'll put on some like, edifying and glorious rap music and I'll just like uh-huh brush my teeth to the beat and to the vibe and like my mind in that moment it, it, it's being filled first thing in the morning that, that that bass is pumping my blood is rushing and it affects the rest of my day if I start my day off on a good foot I know my heart is then in the right place and my action follows suit but it started here with my perspective waking up on Friday morning, I went out and I raked my yard. I did some spring cleaning. I don't know what it, about, or what it is about men, and they do tasks, and now it's the general stereotype, but they do tasks and they're proud of things, right? Like I like did something. Like I raked my yard, and then I went inside, and I looked at the yard with no gravel and with no leaves, and I felt this enormous pride in myself. Like, I was moved to be nicer to my wife that day because I raked the yard. No word of a lie. I went to youth on Friday night absolutely pumped. And the only thing I could think of is that I raked my yard in the morning. That was the only difference. But think about it. What I did with my body affected my mind. And I had some, like, physical work. I mean, my blood got pumping. The endorphins were going. And then I put it in bags. 
but it affected me here. There was some sort of weird pride in my rake yard. But then it affected me here in how I treated other people. There's a deep interconnection between our mind, between our body, and between our soul, our heart. And Jesus' action in the temple is motivated by this deep interconnection of parts. When he enters the temple and flips tables, he is aware that when he leaves the temple, the buyers and sellers, they're just going to start doing what they're doing again. He doesn't come in here thinking that like, this was a complete overthrow. No, remember, Jesus is killed shortly after. So what do you think happened? They went, they unflipped their tables, they gathered their coins, they brought their animals back in and put their stools back on edge. But Jesus is making a point. Where are your affections? Where are your affections? Where is your heart? Jesus draws on uh, the prophets and he shows us what the kingdom of God is meant to look like. That the temple is a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. And Jesus is for the transformation of your heart. He is for the transformation of your person. And we see it right through Matthew 5 and 6, when Jesus elevates the commands of the law uh, past the actions of the body and into the realm of the heart and of the mind. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, if you look lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's the words of Jesus. Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you're angry, you'll be subject to judgment. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you, give to everyone who asks of you. You have heard it said, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love them and pray for them. Jesus is about a transformation of the heart. But just because he is after the heart, it doesn't mean that the actions don't matter. If the parts are interconnected, then the heart is transformed, but something then follows suit. In fact, I think we can make a good case that what you do with your actions is very telling of what's going on in your heart. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he pleads for unity in the context of the church. His whole letter to the Ephesians talks about how we are one in Christ and how there should be no divisions among us, but together we labor as, as followers of Christ. That there is unity, no distinguishing attributes between us. Jesus, Paul says, has captured your affections. As he teaches the Ephesians in his letter, he says, Jesus has captured your affections. And my prayer for you, Paul says, is that that affection-capturing moment births something in you that begins to affect you up here. That your affections are turned toward Jesus and away from the things that lead you to death. And in that process, you begin to think rightly about who Jesus is. You're taught, you're instructed in the Word. And then from there, your action is no longer that of the pagans who worship in their temples, who don't care about where the body is postured and what the body does, but rather your, your action is oriented toward Christ and fulfilling what Christ has for you. 
Your action is then oriented to taking care of others. Your action is then outward focused. It's about promoting unity in the body. This is what Paul says, Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. It's on the screen for you. I pray that out, this is a prayer for the Ephesians. This is beautiful. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's praying that God may light a fire of salvation in their heart. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I I pray that you have some understanding of how insane God's love is for you. That it starts to connect for you up here. That it starts here, that it grows into here. And then he, he finalizes his prayer with that you may mature. The consequence of these things, this here and this here. The consequence is that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God that your right affections and that your right thinking will then lead you to right action, to righteousness. Jesus in Matthew 21 is mad and is against sin and corruption. He is undeniably mad at good things which have been perverted. And so you in this moment and me in this moment have to ask ourselves, what are the good things that we have perverted? Where are the tables in our hearts and in our lives that Jesus is on about flipping? It's not something anybody else can answer for you. I mean, we can help point you in the right direction, but you know your heart. And this is a moment where the text forces us to be critical of ourselves. Again, we're not the hero in the story, right? We're not the Jesus in the story, uh, uh, making sure everybody else is living a righteous life. We're the money changers. We're the buyers and sellers of religious commercialism. Where are you here? What's going on in your heart? What, What sin is dragging you down? And what's the process of breaking those cyclical patterns of sin in your life? I mean, I was reflecting this week. These passages read us. I was reflecting and I was uh, flipping back through some of my journals. And um, about a month ago, I, I, I wrote about my anger that was welling up. I don't think I'm particularly given to anger. Uh, but I wrote about how my outbursts of anger were concerning me. And then it, it kind of devolves into a prayer asking the Lord to, to take these things from me, to create in me a clean heart. And, and my prayer was that God would be so present in my moments of anger that there would be no outburst. It's a process, right? It's this process of getting out. And the first thing I'll say is that I'm no moral champion. Um, I have about 37 sins on the go right now that I'm actively dealing with. 
But I saw a moment this week, and you're going to think this is dumb, but for me it was profound. I was barbecuing in the backyard, and as I took the full plate of meat off the barbecue, I had a metal skewer, and it burned my hand. And I dropped the plate outside, and every single piece of meat hit the ground. I love the barbecue. I love the meat. The natural reaction in this moment, if I'm given to anger, use your imagination. But I kid you not, in a moment of the only thing that I can describe it as is divine peace, my prayer was answered, God present in my anger. I picked everything up, I walked inside, and where normally that could derail my evening, call me petty, so are you. (laughs) Normally that could derail my evening, I came inside and it didn't. And it's by, I truly believe, the grace of God working even in the small things. The dropped meat on the ground outside. But it's this process of repentance, of asking God to be first in our lives and prioritizing Him first when He meets us in the moments that seem insignificant, but are truly uh, the moments of transformation. What I know in this stupid little story is that God is faithful. What I know is that when our affections are captured by Christ, our minds turn to Him, and then our action lives out His righteousness. The second point I want to make is that Jesus is on about ushering in a new kingdom. Verses 13 and 14, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. We have two things, maybe three things going on here. First of all, Jesus, he quotes the Old Testament prophets in saying that his house is a house of prayer. Uh, It was Isaiah who had said this, and this is where Jesus is drawing on this. Worship has been perverted in the temple, Jesus said. This is to be a place of relationship with God. And your sin has gotten in the way. And the first thing we need to ask ourselves out of that question, or that statement by Jesus, is, is this place a place of prayer? Not just this physical place, but this church, this body of believers. Are we people of prayer? Come to think of your first reaction when times get tough. Do you gripe and complain? Or are you given to prayer? Or do you gather the body of believers around you? Or do you text those people and say, we need to pray. This house, physical, sure, but also this house of people need to be a place of prayer. How you react with your words is telling of what's going on in your mind. It's telling of what's going on in your heart. There's this deep interconnection. And perhaps for you, your prayer this week needs to be from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. Maybe your prayer needs to be this. God, I pray 
that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen me with your power through your Spirit in my inner being so that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith. And I pray that I may be rooted and established in love. And God, that I may have power together with all the saints here at Soul Sanctuary to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ for me. And God, I pray that I may come to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. God, may I be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. It's this process of transformation that Jesus is on about. And I think in Ephesians 3, Paul outlines that beautifully for us. This place is to be a place of prayer. We are to be a people of prayer. And let's keep it at the forefront of our mind. Jesus then addresses the fact that it's not a place of prayer. That it's a den of robbers. And perhaps this will strike us to the core today. Hear Dale uh, Bruner, a commentator on this passage. He says this, it's on the screen for you. When a church exists for comfort, to the exclusion of challenge, for grace and not ever for judgment, she becomes a hideout for thieves rather than the house of God. Scripture is clear. In Jesus, there is both grace and judgment. There's no way that, that, that we could do justice to the text and write out Jesus' judgment here. Jesus is hot. Jesus is mad at what's going on. And for us as a church, do we exist for comfort? I don't think so. Do we exist to the exclusion of challenge? I don't think so. But the way that church is structured in North America is that you can sit there for comfort and that you can sit there to the exclusion of challenge. And then, perhaps the rebuke is, is that you're making this place a den of robbers. Jesus scolds them. From Jeremiah 7. He's looking to the prophets. He's saying, these prophecies are fulfilled in me. And it does us good to read what Jesus means when he says, den of robbers. This is the critique that Jeremiah gives in, in Jeremiah 7 to the people of Israel. He says, you steal, you murder, you commit adultery and perjury, you burn sacrifices to Baal, you run after other gods whom you have not known. And then you come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and you say, we are saved. Do you think that this house that bears my name is a den of robbers? Come on, that should make us raise our eyebrows and take two steps back. You steal, you murder, you commit adultery and perjury and burn sacrifices to Baal, you run to other gods that you don't even know. And then you come to church on Sunday morning and you stand before God and you go, Oh, I am saved. This should, this should be scary that this is where Jesus is quoting from. This should move us to right action is what it should do. My prayer is that this is a community 
that may be a house of prayer. My prayer is that this may be a community that challenges each other. A community which calls each other to the standard of Scripture that Christ has set out for us. A house which basks in the grace of God. And don't miss this this morning. I mean, it's easy to read a passage like this and leave here and be like, oh, depressing judgment. Don't miss that the grace of God is active and working and present in your life to even get you here this morning. My prayer is that this is a house that basks in the grace of God. Fully and liberally basks in the grace of God, but has a full understanding of the judgment which Jesus brings forward in Matthew 21. Uh, Jesus did not come to condemn humanity. Hear me clearly. Jesus didn't come here to condemn humanity. He came here for our redemption. He came here to reconstitute our relationship with God, to bring us back together. He came here to do away with the old and to bring in the new, which was that you and I, through the grace of Jesus Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit, may have a relationship with God, which leads to life and life to the fullest. This is the intention of Jesus. But it's not a road where we go about our own way, where we neglect Him and rely on Him only when we need Him. It's a way that demands our all. Those in the early church had a a full comprehension of this. As they're actively promoting the message of Jesus, they're they're faced with death. Their own impending doom at the hands of Rome. Christians uh, across the world for thousands of years have recognized the sacrifice of following Jesus. And you and I sit here in the comfort of this lovely building and we have to somehow get our heads around the fact that Jesus calls for your all. Jesus came in to usher a new kingdom. A kingdom in which you and I could have relationship with God free from any barrier. A kingdom in which the Spirit could use you to transform the world. That's not my youthful, idealisticness speaking. That is the Scripture speaking. That you have the power, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, to make a lasting difference in this world. And then finally, the kingdom, this new kingdom is on full display. And the band can come back up. This new kingdom is on full display in verse 14. It says, the blind and the lame came to him at his temple and he healed them. In 2 Samuel, in the Old Testament, King David is attacking the city on a hill, which is Jerusalem. And the Jebusites rule the city. And David is moving his army into the city to capture it and to take the city back. Now, as he does this, he hears from the Jebusites. And they say, they mock David. They say, this city is impenetrable. There's no way that that, that we're even, we're not even going to put out our armed forces. Our boys are going to relax in the inner parts of the city. And we're going to put out the blind and the lame. And you couldn't even take the city from the hands of the blind and the lame. 
And there's a lot of readings and writings in and around this scripture about what it really meant. Some scholars say that they literally put out their maimed soldiers, soldiers who had been injured in battle. And while the actual garrison hung out, the, the, the defenders of the city walls were maimed, blind, lame, whatever else. And so we find that David's army, cunning and clever as ever, they go up a, an aqueduct, a water chute in the city. They don't try to go through the walls. They sneak attack. And they take the city. But in this, there's some interesting passages in 2 Samuel that talks about David's anger towards the blind and the lame. Whether or not he's just retorting back at the Jebusites. But what we know is that in the horrors of war, David's anger burns against the blind and the lame. David is undeniably shaped by his experiences in battle. He has a distrust of, arguably a hatred of, the blind and the lame. And David makes a proclamation that the blind and the lame are not welcome in his house, in his palace. Now, we have to read that in the light of, uh, of Scripture and, and David actually later on in 2 Samuel having a lame man eating at the king's table who didn't deserve to be there, etc., etc. But there is something going on here. There's a rejection of the least of these in society by David after a military conquest. And then Jesus shows up, the son of David. What is the blind man who's healed by Jesus called Jesus, he calls him son of David. Jesus shows up, and in the temple, after entering Jerusalem, he restores sight to the blind, and he heals the lame. The pools that surrounded the temple, they were in the shadow of the temple, not inside the temple, outside the temple, were the areas where the blind and the lame congregated. There's multiple stories about it in the life of Jesus that we've already gone through. Jesus healing people at these pools in the shadow of the temple, not inside. But now Jesus is inside the temple and he restores sight to the blind. And he heals the lame. And through David's sin and your sin and my sin, our relationship with God and the evolution of human beings has gone askew. Our sin has put a separation barrier between us. But Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins to usher in his new kingdom. He begins to usher in a kingdom of healing. He begins to usher in a kingdom of hope, a kingdom of reconstitution, a kingdom of right relationship. And it's through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone that, that, that the human evolution, our path, of people, of being people, is made whole. Our sin is done away with by the grace of Jesus Christ, by his life, his teaching, his death, and his subsequent re resurrection that we celebrated last week. And through Christ, our hearts are softened towards him. And through Christ, we come to comprehend what his will is for us. And through Christ, our actions then live out what he requires of us. It's the whole being transformation. It's not just the body, fake it till you make it. 
It's not just the mind being a scholar who, who doesn't live by what you think and what you write. It's not just the heart having some uh, inclination towards Jesus, but never really getting there. Jesus is on about a new kingdom, which is a complete transformation of you and a complete transformation of me. Jesus' last act on this day, before he went to bed, is to heal the blind and the lame. His last act on this day is one of mercy and of grace to the ostracized, to the people who didn't belong. This should give you hope. It gives me hope. This is the Jesus that we serve. It's through Jesus and through the work and the power of his Holy Spirit, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 3, that life transformation can come for you and for me. Let's pray. Father God, you are both merciful King and mighty Judge. Lord, in this moment of quiet, speak to our hearts. Father, show us where we've gone astray. Lord, show us the good in our life that we've perverted. Lord, flip the tables of our hearts. And in that, Lord, hear our cries for repentance and forgive us our sins as you have promised. May you transform us by your word and by your spirit into followers who seek you first above all things. May we, your church, be a house of prayer. May we be a people who seek you earnestly. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we choose to live in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Uh, in times of old, when giving a blessing, one would raise hands and those receiving the blessing would do likewise. If you would like a blessing, nothing magical here, a proclamation from his word, would you raise your hands this morning? So sanctuary, as you go, may you look introspectively, opening the doors of your heart and allow Jesus to flip some tables. May you go strengthened by the power of the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. May you go established in love, having power together with the saints and grasping the width, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love for you. And may you go filled to the measure of the fullness of God, honoring him in righteousness and sharing his message to those around you. Be blessed and we'll see you next week.